The documentary Planet of the Humans is a thought-provoking reality check on the limitations of the environmental movement. Seeking answers to questions that many would have never dared to ask, it's not surprising that the film, produced by Michael Moore, has inspired significant controversy and 10 million downloads since it launched online a few months ago. We explore some of those provocative questions with director Jeff Gibbs in our latest podcast. Welcome to In the Business of Change, where we speak with social entrepreneurs impacting their communities and the world. I'm your host, Elisa Birnbaum, publisher and editor-in-chief of Sea Change magazine. For those asking, yes, my book, also titled In the Business of Change, Profiling Social Entrepreneurs Around the World, is now available in audiobook format too, with me as your narrator. You can find it wherever you normally buy your books and audiobooks, including Amazon or on our website. On today's podcast, we speak with Jeff Gibbs, director of the divisive and shocking documentary, Planet of the Humans. In our conversation, Jeff explains why he decided to open Pandora's green box and shed light on the shortcomings of renewable energy. We also discuss the failings of the movement's green leadership, often mired in questionable corporate partnerships. Jeff then shares some more realistic solutions to climate change and what gives him hope despite it all. You've created quite a stir with this film. I mean, it's it's interesting. How many downloads have you had so far? Do you know? Uh, on our main YouTube site, it's approaching 10 million, but there are maybe half a dozen other sites that put the movie up. So, And then somebody estimated that we might have had more than a million or so illegal downloads. I made this movie, we made this movie to create discussion. You know, none of us have all the answers. And right. I think there's a lot of ego involved in saying we have the solutions or the answers. And I'm a former social worker and an addictions counselor. And sometimes I have this saying to the other people working on it, which I've never mentioned to anyone in an interview, but it's like one of the things that happens is that you can ruin people's drinking. You can't tell people not to abuse drugs or alcohol, but if you present the right awareness, it can work over time. So that was one of my goals is just to create the discussion and the awareness um, so that we could be, begin to ask ourselves tough questions. And also, just so you know, just glancing at your magazine, I have a, a background as a social worker. I really love people. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I'm really worried that what we're in for is going to blindside us if we're not prepared. And I think uh, whatever else is true, how we le learn to love each other, care for each other and get along, um, which we're going the other way in the U.S. right now, is going to determine our fate a lot more than technology. Um, so that's kind of where I'm coming from in general. You kind of touched upon part of my first question, which was, you know, why? Like, what what, what was the the objective of, of this document, like, for you? Um, but I'll let you respond if there's anything further you want to say on that in terms of, you know, sure. the, the importance of it and why specifically now today. Well, I have to admit my ego was probably in the way. Um, the very beginning, I thought, like a lot of other people, I would make a film to wake everyone up. If I only could show how bad things were getting with climate change and biodiversity collapse. And then I realized my friends kept telling me people are aware, but and was, I'm like, well, what what is really in the way? And as I began to stumble into green energy not being what it was cracked up to be, I began to realize that maybe it's our clinging to illusions or clinging to things uh, that even if they're true are not going to really make the difference. And so I, that, I went down that road instead. So I made a, an entire film on the downfall of nature um, 
and then realize that that's not what's in the way. We, we all hear the, the bad news, um, but there's something in the way of us acting, and there's probably several things. Okay. So why now? Um, we really wanted to get the film out this year, and um, we were trying to. We were working on plans to get it in theaters. And one of our fantasies was um, we would take a train across Canada and, and go to theaters and have discussions. But of course, when we between the pandemic, it seemed like a time when our Mother Earth sent us to our room to think about things. Oh. And um, it's you know people didn't have money, and it, it just seemed like the, the right thing to do was get it out right now. And having lived, been here for the first Earth Day, even though the environmental movement has made tremendous progress overall, um, if you look at any of the numbers in terms of the collapse of nature, it's just gotten tremendously worse the last few decades. So we have to ask ourselves as environmentalists, is it just the other side's fault or have we been doing something wrong too? Got it. And you definitely did put that question out there for sure. What I loved about it was how honest it was and um – like I know for me, I, I, I'll be the first to say that there's a lot about the green movement I don't fully understand. Like when we talk about solar panels, I was fascinated to learn about what they're actually made of and how they work. And even though I write about this stuff often, I, it's like the, the intricacies and the, the complexity of it all. I don't think I'm the only one who's not that well informed. So that I thought was fascinating and so important because there's a lot of us who jump on bandwagons and, and so want there to be solutions um, that maybe we, we don't spend enough time actually learning and listening and understanding. Well, yeah, it's, you raise a lot of good points. Um, don't feel bad that you didn't know like how solar panels are made because actually I was looking into this for years because I knew that Dow Chemical, which is a little clue right there, Dow Chemical in relationship with this company called Hemlock uh, in Michigan, um, their solar panel factory uh, where they actually make the business part, the silicon, is, was the largest single user of energy in Michigan. And there was a giant coal-fired power plant right next to this facility. But I was like, where do they get their sand? And I, I, Because we have precious rare dunes in Michigan that can be exploited. So when I met Ozzy um, Zenner, the author of Green Illusions, who had written a book about this and was at the time a visiting scholar at Berkeley, UC Berkeley, he didn't know either. And so finally, we found some clues and we figured out that they had to, they, it wasn't sand, it was rare mined quartz. And then you have to put carbon right into the process um, in the form of coal, usually. And then, you know, so that took us a long time to unpack. And, and we found some industrial video confirming that. Um, and, th and then, but we've, all this is in, in the movie. People say, well, we'll have better technology. Well, there's an alternative to, um, silicon-based solar panels, but actually they're more, some of them are more toxic and they're not even recommended for your roof. There's processes that don't use carbon or don't use as much carbon, but they take more energy. So what we discovered is that everywhere you go, there's a trade-off. Oh, but they'll, they'll recycle all the stuff they mine. Well, just do a search for the environmental impact and the impact on communities of recycling. Uh, recycling, just getting the materials there uses a lot of energy. So it just began to seem like there's no free lunch. And what we're trying to avoid is that we humans are hitting limits. Right. And that, you know, we'd probably all be happier if we had a, a less consumption-based, more community-based civilization. But nobody's asking the question. Or rather, even though Bill McKibben, for instance, knows that growth is an issue and has talked about that, and, I, and Bernie Sanders has told me that growth has to be dealt with, those are not leading our environmental campaigns. It's all the charge ahead for 
carbon offsets, you know, renewable energy. Um, and even now when people say, oh, well, this biomass thing, you know, you've spent so much time with it. But I just saw an article where it's scheduled to double in the next couple of decades. Um, the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, you think it's all about solar panels and wind turbines, but most of the models for the Paris Climate Agreement involved this thing called carbon capture and sequestration, and they were going to use the forests of the world as a source for the carbon to sequester. I'm like, <laughs> so, you know, Stephanie Mills, an environmental writer, once said to me, this is a fine time for humans to understand we're hitting limits. And Right. Which, and interesting, that is sort of where you get to by the end of the film. I was going to wait till that question at the end, but you sort of come to, it's not necessarily a question of like renewable energies are limited in their capacity to make a difference, but we can stop being so uh, focused on consumption and, and change our behavior and our lifestyle, and that can make a bigger difference? Or is it a, a, are you saying there's a combination of things that we should be doing? Because if renewable energy is so limited, is it ever going to get better? And if not, is there a choice but to change our behavior? There's no choice but to change our behavior. And when I say that, not just individually, but we, you know, we're all relying on these giant systems in order for our work, for our food, um, for our communications. And so we can, we need to take personal responsibility. But the really bigger point is um, when we talk about climate change or biodiversity collapse, we need to be changing the systems. You know, the, all the food that we eat in the world, most of it's dependent on being shipped around the planet. You know, Canada is a long way from being food independent. Um, and so these systems are going to keep polluting no matter what we do. And if they're, whether they're powered by solar panels, or fossil fuels, you have to ask yourself, do we want bulldozers? Do we want solar power chainsaws? Do we want solar power giant trawlers scraping the bottom of the sea? There's this, just a study this week that said that all of the mining required to increase solar and wind, and we're talking about millions and millions of solar panels, hundreds of thousands of square miles of wind turbines. Um, that mining would produce enough biodiversity damage to, to equal what climate change is doing. Already 10% of, of global energy emissions are from the mining that's done on this planet. And we'd have to increase it many times to build out these technologies. So that's part of it is that we're just gonna exchange one set of uh, non-renewable resources for another. Um, we're gonna be powering other things that are destroying the planet besides climate change using green energy. But for me, it's worse than that. People can make up their own minds. But as you see in the film, when you put up a giant solar array, you don't just get to shut off power plants. So it's kind of a false equivalency that we've made uh, between the two. Um, and that doesn't even account for all the fossil fuels involved in the mining. But so here in Michigan, we have this thing, you know, it's right now it's September and it's already getting cloudy. It's going to be cloudy from most of October, November, December, January, February, and March. Um, You've got to have other power sources that are filling in the gap. Or I don't know how I would get enough storage to store enough energy to heat our homes from solar panels in December. Um, you know, the wind often. So it really is true despite what's said, and I know people get upset about this, but the variability really is the downfall of renewables. And, oh, but we'll, we'll have storage. Well, as you see in the movie, the, the amount of storage is so small, and to ramp it up would be more lithium mining, more cobalt mining. Uh, there was just a coup in Bolivia. Some people believe to open up the lithium resources to build more electric cars. 
Elon Musk actually said when somebody complained about that, we'll coo who we want. It's just <laughs> so, you know, I don't know if that's answering your question, but I, I actually don't think renewables do replace fossil fuels. You know, I wish that they did. I wish I could have some magic things to put on my roof that would make me feel innocent and clean and green. <laughs> but, you know, it doesn't really, you know. The first thing you you would do, if, even if you did put solar panels on this house and get batteries for storage, um, the the first thing I would have to do is drastically cut down how I my lifestyle, right. and and that we can do no matter what energy source we have, and we should do. One other thing I was going to bring up in terms of you know you, we we talk about McKibben and Gore and all these people who are are leaders obviously, and we've looked up to them for so many years, um, and we see that they they are limited in in creating partnerships with perhaps people they shouldn't be creating partnerships. It's not so much that I was surprised to see that. What I'm still wondering, because I, I always believe that in collaboration, uh, partnerships are so important, especially with the, you know, even if we don't necessarily like the profit motive and all that, but I think it could be very helpful, you know, just practically speaking and get us, getting us further beyond maybe, maybe not. I'm putting it out there, whether you think there's ever a possibility that a collaborative effort um, with all different sectors is even possible in this realm, in this, in, in our, in our mission of, uh, you know, fighting climate change. It's a very good question. Nobody's put it quite like that. I don't think it's the collaboration that's a problem. It's the billionaires, bankers, and the giant foundations driving the bus. And you don't, you're seeing the kind of the tip of the iceberg of that in the, in the movie. But back in the 90s, um, you know, um, in this country, um, our President Clinton and Al Gore began to bring all these corporations into the fold. And um, part of what happened was instead of the, the foundations that are often funded by the Rockefellers, the Fords, the very rich, they began to determine the environmental movement. So in other words, instead of environmental groups coming to them, here's what we think should be done. They began to, to plot the agenda. So I think the, the problem is that these people are driving the bus. We're going to have to work with everybody. You're absolutely correct. Uh, but I've heard this in many sectors. Uh, the, the forest activists in the Pacific Northwest told me there was never more logging than under Clinton Gore because people thought it was being taken care of. And all of the people that opposed clear cutting and opposed you never hear about logging anymore, do you? All those people got defunded. And uh, of course, you've got to work with the industry, but the only groups that are, have, have been funded are the ones that, that collaborate. So you don't hear about deforestation anymore. It's like it went away. Well, it didn't go away. Uh, you know, they've cut, So it's a question of who's leading this movement. Um, and I think that's a question, at least in this country, also for our politics. You know, both, I'm going to definitely vote for Biden and Harris, and I'd support them. But we don't agree on everything, you know, on, on the renewable energy part. But both parties that people get disillusioned are, you know, Barack Obama was funded. His lar largest funder, I think one of them was Goldman Sachs. Um, and so as soon as you start to accept that kind of money for you or your organization, do they change or do you change? Do they use you as cover for what they're doing? You know, um, in Canada right now, they're, they're talking about using hydrogen to green the tar sands, uh, hydrogen derived from natural gas. Uh, maybe in some cases you could get it from wind or solar, but that's not happening on scale. So they're using another technology to, to try and green the tar sands. Well, maybe we just don't need to be 
maybe we should be moving away from this vast quantity of oil that we're using. And unfortunately, I guess this is both good news and bad news. We know how to move away from oil. It's to use less fossil fuels. You know, maybe there's no magic technology. Maybe me staying home, sure, it's tough, but I'm getting to know everything that's living around here. And I'm paying more attention to my neighbors. And the people I'm visiting with are, are local. And we're meeting like this instead of me flying to Toronto. You know, I bet I saved a lot of energy by doing it like this. So we need to think of a different way to live. I don't have the answer, but that to me, that's the question. And sorry to go on, but you've raised some. This is why I made the movie, so we could talk about these things. No, I love this. I love this. This is great. Um, and again, like I said, I could normally keep it for four hours, but I won't do it. Um, I, just one other thing that I'm, I'm confused about is the whole biomass why would people think that was a good idea? Like, I maybe I don't understand it entirely, but the way it's explained to me, it just seems like, am I missing something? It's people seem to have been jumping on it, but yeah, I think um, this is this is my opinion now. I um, we need to do a little research to to back this up, but my feeling is, first of all, that we wanted to get a big tent, and so people wanted to bring in big ag and big timber. Uh, which are both the one and the same, and have a big tent. And when you don't look at the scale of it, when you just think about one small, you know, your own wood stove or your own a little community biomass plant, when you don't look at the scale of it, maybe you think it could be okay if you don't look too closely. And so I think it was an effort to bring them into the tent and to get a win, you know, on something. And, you know, I'd like to think that's what it was, but I it is a little baffling to me because as soon as you look into to burning trees for energy, um, you know, even if everybody started to burn wood instead of fossil fuels, it would be game over for the climate. I mean, and you couldn't you couldn't live in Toronto if, you know, even 10 percent of the people there burned wood. It, right. You'd have to. I mean, it's literally that. So it's been a little bit uh, mystifying how that came about. But I, it all seemed to happen all at once because, you know, around the year that Obama came into office, all this big push for biomass plants came in and a billion dollars in funding. And even Van Jones, who you see in the film, I yeah. love Van Jones. He's, he's a great commentator. <laughs> but his Apollo Alliance, which isn't in the film, had a little proud dot on their map of successful green projects. It was that plant in Michigan that was going to get wood from tens of thousands of square miles. I imagine that would have bled into Ontario. Um, For sure. Yeah, I mean. You know, and yeah. he sort of scratches his chin and he said, maybe I should have looked into this more. <laughs> And you don't usually hear him saying things like that. Even even that, that uh, well, this is not biomass related, but I was just thinking now when people scratching their chin and people that are experts that you never usually see doing this, but even McKibben when he was asked who his funders are and he's scratching his chin and wondering and questioning. All these, you know, individuals that we look up to as leaders over the years who seem to have all the answers and you see them in your film who they don't have all the answers. That's not a very common way of seeing them you know it kind of put them in a little more human uh light um it, you know and i'm saying that charitably so you did lend a very interesting perspective to all these um these questions and the green leaders who uh you know respond to them so that that was fascinating i, I, I was really expecting a different answer from all of them i was quite shocked and um as you see with all this the, the citizen environmentalists none of them had a trouble answering the question and I thought for sure with the camera rolling they would um, they would say something different, and I, it just was baffling to me. And I actually was, to be honest with you, that those particular interviews with um, McKibben and um, Van Jones, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., 
that was part of a climate action thing. And we were actually with credentials invited in and led over to them to ask these questions. So mm. it was not as, it was not like we were just um, buttonholing them on the street, but it was very depressing. And I was a little bit incapacitated for a, a couple of weeks after that. I was just like, what the heck is this all about? And no kidding. McKibben has come out against biomass. He did, you know, he wrote one essay after our encounter, and then he wrote another one after the film premiered. And I'm glad for that. Yeah. But it only includes biomass, doesn't include biofuels. And even now, is there any visible anti-biomass campaign when you hear anyone, any politician or any group, you look at their website, do they have, like, down with fossil fuels and biomass? You, you, even now, it's not really injected into the larger discussion. Um, yeah. And just to be clear, you know, I wrote an article uh, about 10 years ago about this, one of the first ones I think that came out. But um, so there was a group of scientists that warned that a mistake had been made in the Kyoto treaties, which is interesting because that Al Gore was part of that, that was made in the carbon accounting. And that if, in fact, we expanded biomass, it it would be trigger a whole new round of deforestation across the planet. And that warning was ignored. Um, so here we are. Here we are. I'm not really surprised. Um Last question, I promise. Um, do you have hope for the future? I mean, do you? What do you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. For two, for two reasons. Um, I have to admit, the former social worker in me. If we're in real trouble, and even if there's no solution, so much better to be aware and to savor every moment that we still have redwoods, we still have songbirds, we, we still have some butterflies. You know, to savor, we still are on a living planet, and to be aware. Uh, is much healthier than to be have blinders on. But um, we're at once the most destructive thing to hit the planet and in some ways the most magical thing. And we, just like with the, um, when the coronavirus hit, we were able to temporarily just step back, whoa, what the heck's going on, change our behavior. The skies got bluer all across the planet. Um, Toronto got quieter. The sky was probably blue for you too. You saw you know, stars. Oh, you could see stars in Toronto. I didn't know that. <laughs> um, and so, yes, I, I'm, you know, this gives me hope having these discussions. Whatever hope we have comes from, as I said, the movie Awareness and dismissing, realizing that we all have illusions we cling to, yeah. protect ourselves. That can be healthy, but at some point we have to, to challenge those. Agreed. And I, I really feel that, that, uh, you know, just the awareness that this film has provided me and the the questions it's it's provoking, um, that in itself can make a huge difference, hopefully, in how we think of climate change and tackling it and, and the choices we make in our lives moving forward. So I thank you so much for the film. It really was uh, very, very important um, and couldn't, I think, came at a perfect time. So thank you very, very much. And thanks for taking the time to speak with me. Alyssa, thank you very much for having me on and having this discussion. And uh you guys keep the lights on in uh, Toronto. We might need them if, depending on what happens in November. So. <laughs> We're here. <laughs> All right. Take care. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to In the Business of Change. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to hear other conversations with inspired social entrepreneurs and change makers working on challenges in their communities and across the globe. I'm your host, Elisa Birnbaum. Thank you.